1: In 2009, in Farmville, Virginia, 16-year-old Emma Niederbrock struck up an online relationship with an aspiring rapper. The two bonded over their love of music, but Emma didn't realize that her online boyfriend was a much different person in real life. Join me now as we take a look into the brutal crimes of a troubled young teenager who was hiding a dark and twisted side. ...that no one could have ever imagined. On October 15, 1992, Emma was born to parents Deborah and Mark Niederbrock in Champaign, Illinois. After relocating to Virginia, Deborah began working as an Associate Professor of Sociology and Criminal Justice Studies at Longwood University... ...while Mark pastored at a Presbyterian church in Hicksburg, Virginia... Much like her parents, Emma was bright and achieved good grades. But when she was 14 years old, Emma's parents split. They remained amicable and cooperative co-parents, with Emma living primarily with her mother in Farmville, Virginia. Farmville is a suburban town located roughly 65 miles southeast of Richmond, Virginia. Despite its relatively small population of around 8,000 residents, It's surprisingly packed with quite a few things to do. Whether it's golfing, antique shopping, or checking out the various historical sites, Farmville has become a distinctive place where small-town charm meets a college-town vibe. Students attending the two major colleges, Hampton-Sydney and Longwood University, contribute to much of the population. At the age of 14, around the same time as a parent-separated, Emma dropped out of public school and was homeschooled by her mother, Deborah. Emma didn't have many close friends during her school years, and now with even fewer opportunities to socialize, Emma began reaching out to people through social media, in particular MySpace. She went by the name Ragdoll. It was there she connected with people with a shared interest. Horrorcore music, a subgenre of rap with a focus on horror-themed lyrics and imagery. As Emma immersed herself in horrorcore subculture, her social circle began to grow rapidly. A popular artist she was fond of heads a record label called Serial Killin' Records, a prominent member of the community who goes by the name Sick Tanic. During the MySpace days, he came to know and befriend many young fans, including Emma. Sick describes some common attributes among those drawn to his type of music
0: do think probably like a good 60% are troubled, and they do have trouble and they are pariah or they are socially awkward or inept or they have problems at home. The thing is, is that I'm like that too. And that's what I think makes it special and that's what I think makes it relatable.
1: Soon, Emma dyed her hair pink and began wearing black clothing and dark makeup. Even so, her parents chose not to intervene, concerned it might cause their daughter to rebel even more. Sensing Emma was lonely, Tanic put her in contact with another teenager in Virginia named Melanie Wells. Melanie, who was two years older than Emma, was also part of the horrorcore subculture. The two clicked and bonded over their shared interests, almost immediately, and were both involved in Sictanix and her fan group.
0: Emma and Melanie had contacted us to become a member of what we call the Apostles. And the Apostles was like our street team for our most loyal, kind of diehard fans that did like street promotion, handing out flyers, online promotion. This was back in the MySpace days, so posting up bulletins, spreading graphics and stuff like that. And, you know, we had seen them around for a minute because they would always comment on our stuff, they'd repost our bulletins, and then both Emma and Mel had reached out to become members of the Apostles' uh, street team.
1: Two months after beginning their communication, the girls began planning to meet up for the first time, which would include attending a horrorcore concert in Chicago. Up until then... Emma's interests had taken her mostly to rock and heavy metal clubs around Virginia, being the closest type of music to horrorcore in the area. Her mom, Deborah, and father Mark weren't entirely keen on Emma's newfound passion.
0: And so I know there was a battle for quite some time between her and both her parents about her being such a hardcore fan of of the music, you know, that we did. I think eventually her parents realized that it wasn't really negative, it was more of like a, a catalyst for Emma and you know, and Emma in particular, Mel was different, but uh for Emma, she she had that bit of rebellion in her, especially for religion and a lot of um, you know, like my older material has a very anti religious sentiment to it. And so I think that that attracted her to it and I think that enabled that my music was a, a catalyst for her to kind of get out that aggression in a uh constructive way.
1: Emma began partying with her newfound friends, posting pictures of herself drinking and doing drugs on her MySpace page. But despite all the changes in her appearance and interests, she'd become so much more energetic and outgoing now that she discovered a community of people she felt a bond with. And as she became more popular on MySpace, she began to draw the attention of a number of men. One, in particular, was a young man named Richard. Richard Samuel Alden McCroskey was 19 years old when he began communicating online with Emma. An aspiring horrorcore rapper, Sam went by the name Psycho Sam and Lil' Demon Dog, both references to New York serial killer David Berkowitz. While this could potentially be a red flag, Horrorcore artists regularly use names related to the morbid and gruesome. At the time, Sam resided in Castro Valley, California, living with his father and 21-year-old sister. Sam was described as a quiet kid who struggled to defend himself against bullies. Ultimately, he dropped out of high school. His red hair and physique seemed to make him an easy target when it came to the cruelty of other children. Growing up, Sam wasn't especially social, and spent most of his time locked away in his bedroom, playing video games, and communicating with people online. To help with his isolation, Sam turned to music. That's when he first connected with Siktanic.
0: With Sam, it's pretty much an identical type of story. He was a huge fan of the music, and he wanted to be an apostle, and so... Uh... He submitted to Become an Apostle, and it was like almost like a questionnaire to have these kids fill out so so we could play to their strengths, or or at least what we thought their strengths could be. So when he submitted, I saw the fact that he knew Flash, Java, and HTML. And so back then, I kind of did everything. Like I ran the whole show, so whenever I saw that this kid knew those type of programming languages, I wanted him to do a website for us. And so um, that is how I got in contact with him as far as like accepting him and the apostles and putting him to work, so to speak, was to do web development for us.
1: While working with Sam, Sick was able to get to know him on a more personal level and right away developed his own first impressions of Sam. For the most part, he wasn't much different from most of the troubled youth he was used to seeing at his concerts, but even from the start, he could see Sam was a little bit different from the already vastly abnormal crowd. Most of the kids sick met and brought into the Apostle Group had problems in their lives, but they were still friendly and sociable with each other. But Sam wasn't like that. His entire life seemed to revolve around the internet, and his poor social skills were Reflected that. Despite Sam's confusing online persona, Sick maintained a professional and friendly relationship with him, hoping one day he'd come out of his shell and feel more comfortable with the community. In early 2009, Sam started trying to create music of his own, but Sick advised him against it. While very talented at coding and web design, Sam lacked the skill and finesse in the world of music, and sick heard every bit of it in the song Sam made.
0: His eventual goal at first was to get signed to my label, but I have always been and still am a very honest person when it comes to how I critique music. And I told him, this isn't for you. You suck. in in not such a not such a blunt way you know i was nice because he was an apostle but he was no good he sucked and i told him he sucked and it was at that point where he was like okay well you know cool like i'm just gonna do this because i like i need an outlet and i'm like dude cool like if that's what you want to do like i'm you have my support because if that's going to help you feel better about whatever it is you're going through Cool, man. Like, we all need our catalysts. Don't pursue this as a professional thing because you're not going to go anywhere.
1: Every song he wrote dealt with the subject of either murder or violence, all of which had the lyrics written from the point of view of a killer. The songs also talked about the evil voices in his head, which told him to murder continuously and take lives on a killing spree. In a video Sam posted on his MySpace page, He boasted of defiling graves in his local cemetery.
0: I'd ask him, like, why are you doing that? You know, and he'd be like, well, you know, like, Christianity, blah, blah. And I'm like, okay, why? You know, after a point in time, like, he he ended up kind of chilling out. In
1: 2009, due to a struggling relationship with his father, Sam was asked to move out of the home. However, with no steady job, Sam was stuck there until he could find a way out. Luck seemed to finally change for him when he began chatting online with Emma after both becoming apostles.
0: He was back in my space, so I don't remember exactly how we did it. If it was a group chat or what, it's been so long. But um, all the apostles were in a centralized area online to where all of them could talk to us at once and we could talk to all of them and they could all talk to each other. And it was kind of a rule that all apostles are all friends with each other on my stage. And so that would kind of, I don't want to say force them to get to, to know each other, but it would put them in a position to where they had the availability to get to know each other. And so it was the fact that they were all apostles and all a part of this promotional team that, uh, they ended up kind of, you know, clicking up, so to speak. As far as Emma and Sam, wasn't until not too long before the festival that, uh, they got romantically interested in each other. They were just kind of friends.
1: Emma seemed intrigued by Sam, but with Emma living in Virginia and Sam in California, the chances of meeting in person were slim. That was until an upcoming horrorcore festival was announced called Strictly for the Wicked. Emma, who was desperate to attend, was now on a mission. She'd been developing a friendship with Melanie online for months, as well as a love relationship with Sam, and both were crazy about horcore music. This was her chance to bring everything and everyone she loved together in the same place. At first, Emma's parents weren't exactly thrilled about the idea of her going to a concert with two people she'd never met in person, especially because one of them was a male, but they finally agreed. On one condition, Deborah and Mark would chaperone them to the concert. Additionally, they asked Emma to invite Sam to stay for a week so they could get to know him better. Unfortunately, things would end up going much differently than any of them had planned. On September 6th, 2009, Sam flew out to Virginia. To meet up with Emma. After almost a whole year of texting and emailing, it was finally time for Emma to meet her online bestie and her boyfriend in the flesh. After Melanie was dropped off at Emma's mother's house, her father drove them both to Richmond Airport, where Emma anxiously waited at the terminal for Sam to arrive. But when he emerged from the gate, he wasn't quite what she'd imagined. As he sauntered over wearing a black hoodie and bright white trainers, he shuffled nervously, stumbling for words. Emma was confused. Was this the same guy she'd been interacting with for months? There was absolutely no spark, and she actually whispered to her friend Melanie that Sam seemed odd. But what could be done now? He'd flown in all the way from California. They'd made plans to drive out to a concert with her parents. She just had to live with it. After being picked up at the airport, they headed to Emma's mom's house. Before heading to the concert, they had to spend six days together. Six whole incredibly awkward days, with Emma spending most of the time in her bedroom, while Sam stayed in the guest room. He came across as needy and vulnerable, a far cry from his online tough guy persona. Emma wasn't intrigued by him anymore, nor was she attracted to him. The Sam she saw in the flesh was much different from the Sam she got to know and love online. She now felt he was so desperate to be accepted by someone that he would have fallen in love with anyone who showed him attention. Deep down, Emma also knew that as soon as Sam went back to California, she wouldn't be speaking to him again. Sam who was already sensing things weren't great between them, was also coming to terms with the possibility that a girl who he thought he could share his life with now found him completely repulsive. Perhaps things could change once they were at the music festival. After all, that is what they had bonded over. On September 12th, Mark and Deborah drove Emma, Melanie, and Sam nine hours to their concert in Detroit. Checking into a hotel before the show, the hotel they checked into was a hot spot for concert goers to meet up with their favorite artists who'd be performing, as well as other community members they'd socialized with online. Sick recalls meeting Sam for the first time.
0: Most fans were really like like outgoing, and they all knew each other, and you know everyone kind of clicked up. And he was more like by himself. I remember when I first met him, I, I gave him my handshake and a hug, as I do with, you know, any fan. And I asked him, you know, hey, you want to come with me? I'm going to go get a, a soda from the soda machine. As we were walking, like, he, he wasn't really saying anything, but he kind of had this, uh he seemed nervous, intimidated, because he's hanging out with one of his favorite artists, and he doesn't want to seem dumb or something, if that makes any sense. I remember I kind of, like, hit him on the shoulder, and I was like, look, bro, like, I'm just a regular f- dude. Like, you don't have to be, like, weird around me. You know, we're all just kicking it, man. Let's have a good time. He's like, all right, cool, man. Like, and so we started to talk a little bit. But he was weird. He was a lot different. Even while a lot of our fans had this really big online personalities, he was really loud and vocal online, but in person, he was really, really shy. He kind of seemed like if you were to flip the kid, he'd grow up in a ball and cry. You know, like, he just didn't seem like like a big personality at all, and not even close.
1: Sick found it difficult to reconcile Sam's outgoing online persona with the image he ended up presenting at the concert. During the show, Sam would burst free from his shell just long enough to get into the mood and enjoy the performance in a way you'd never expect after meeting him.
0: We were up on stage and all the artists were performing like, at that point, he he was like one of us. He was getting wild in the crowd and talking to people and taking pictures. And if he felt like he didn't belong, then that mother deserved an Oscar. You know what I'm saying? For having the best acting us because he was having the time of his life during the show. There's always been kind of, um, I don't know if I want to call it misinformation, but a lot of people think that Emma rejected him. That is true. Him and Emma didn't end up hitting it off in the way that they hit it off online. That is true. But he was hugged up on this other girl for the predominance of the show. I mean, they were making out, they were hugging, like they were all about it. Everyone was kind of doing their own thing and it didn't seem like there was like a beef about it. Like I saw Emma look right at him and this other girl and I didn't see any change in her face. She was just like indifferent, like, cool, whatever, like. I'm not interested in him, so more power to you. And I saw when she was talking to dudes, I saw him watching her and indifferent.
1: The following day, Emma's parents drove the teenagers back to Virginia, where Sam would spend another week before his flight back to California. After arriving back late on September 13th, Emma and her mom went straight to bed. But before Melanie went to bed, she made sure to check in with her mom Kathleen through text, letting her know she'd arrive safely at Emma's. It would be the last text she'd ever send. The following morning, as Melanie's mother tried repeatedly to contact her, all she got was her voicemail. After 12 hours of not hearing from her daughter, Kathleen tracked down Melanie's friend, sick. She knew Melanie had gone to see him at the concert, and hoped he could shed some light on why Melanie wasn't responding. But he, too, couldn't get in touch with her.
0: Melanie's mom called, and uh, I talked to her, and she was like, hey, have you heard from Mel? Her mom is such a sweetheart, man. Like, she was very supportive of this whole thing. She understood that this was a musical thing, but it was also like a positive thing for Melanie. So her mom was well aware of what her daughter was doing, where she was going, the music she was going to listen to. You know, she's super cool about it. I don't know how she got my contact info, but she called and she, you know, have you heard from Mel? Blah blah. No, you know, I, I haven't, as a matter of fact. And so she's like, well, you know, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm starting to get worried. Put your ear to the ground, see if you hear anything. This is my phone number. Please call me back if you hear anything.
1: 24 hours had passed, and no one had heard anything from Melanie or Emma. Neither of them had posted a single thing on MySpace, which was highly unusual, especially after coming back from such a high-profile concert. Sick and the rest of the community did their best to try and reach the girls, calling all available numbers they had access to, but no one was answering. By now, Melanie's parents knew something was wrong. Terribly wrong. So much so, that Melanie's father, Thomas, decided to drive down to Farmville to check on his daughter in person. When he arrived by late afternoon, he knocked on the Niederbrock door, hoping that either his precious daughter or Emma would answer. But no one came to the door. A few moments later, A strange man appeared from behind the house, claiming to be a neighbor. Melanie's father asked if everything was okay, explaining the situation. But the man said he saw the girls leave the home earlier that day and that they'd be back shortly. Reassured everything was fine, Melanie's father drove back to West Virginia. What Thomas didn't realize was that the stranger wasn't a neighbor at all. It was Sam. After Melanie's father returned to West Virginia, both her parents continually tried to contact their daughter, with no success. Surprisingly, after several hours of calling, someone finally answered. And it was Sam. He told Melanie's parents that their daughter, along with Emma and her mother, had gone out to dinner, but their car had broken down, and they were waiting for roadside assistance. For Melanie's parents... It was an unconvincing story, so they continually called throughout the night, hoping to finally reach their daughter, but she still never answered. It wasn't until the following morning that someone finally answered their calls. Again, it was Sam. This time, he told them that the girls had gone to see Emma's father, Mark. By some sort of miracle, Melanie's mother somehow managed to track down Mark directly, but he wouldn't give her the news she was hoping for. In fact, he told her he hadn't heard from either of the girls since he dropped them off. Mark only lived a few miles away, and he told Melanie's mom that he'd head over to the house to check on the girls, promising to call her back straight away. But hours passed, and Mark never called. So Kathleen continued to call the Niederbrock home, and once again, Sam picked up. He told her that Mark hadn't stopped by at all. More eerily, he told her he could hear footsteps in the basement. That's when Kathleen told him to call the local police immediately. And he did. When police arrived, they inspected the basement and found nothing, so they left. On the other side of the country, Sick received a strange call from another member of the horrorcore community. Someone claiming to have just spoken to Sam on the phone.
0: I got a call from someone. I'm just going to say someone. It wasn't Sam, but it was someone that knew Sam. And uh, this person says... Hey, so I got a hold of Sam and I'm like, oh, okay, like, what's good? Like, they break down or something? And this person tells me, like, nah, man, like, Sam said he killed everyone. And I'm like, I gotta talk to this little girl's mom. Like, this isn't funny. I need you to tell me what's f- going on. And he's like, no, really, Sick? Like, he's saying he killed them.
1: Sick couldn't believe what he was hearing and considered for a moment that this was just a big practical joke. He didn't want to believe it. He couldn't believe it. He was part of the horrorcore community. Twisted humor like this was just common, wasn't it?
0: I remember I told this person, I was like, call me back in 10 minutes. And I got off the phone and I kind of sat there. And uh, me and my ex-business partner sat down and we started discussing like, could this be for real? It just didn't make sense. Because of the type of music we do and the scene we're involved in, that type of stuff was kind of common. People, as sick as it is, like people would play like practical jokes on each other. People would play serial killer and role play and, you know, just stupid, edgy, bullshit teenager stuff. We were just discussing, like, could this really be going on? Like, nah, like, we couldn't believe it. And so uh, the person called back in, in that 10, 15 minute period. I remember telling this person, like, look, if you don't tell me the f-ing truth right now, like, I'm going to blackball you. Like, you're never doing anything in horror again. Like, this isn't funny now. Stop f***ing around. Let me talk to Sam. Let me know what is going on. And this person was like, dude, I'm really not f***ing around. Like, Sam said he killed everyone. I don't remember, honestly, if they said they've seen a video or if uh, they've seen a picture, but I could tell. When the person said that they saw something, that they weren't lying, I could hear it in their voice.
1: It was then, Sick decided to put an anonymous call into police. He wanted to end the nightmare for Melanie's mom, who was worried about where her daughter was.
0: I made a decision. I was like, you know what, I'm going to put forth an anonymous call to the cops, and I'm going to tell them to do a welfare check. So I told the cops, like, hey, I heard someone might be in trouble at this address. Jenny, you please go do a welfare
1: check? A short time later, Sick called the police back again. This time, hoping to hear some good news that they'd found the girls and everything was all right. However, that wasn't the case. On September 17th, 2009, just after 3 p.m., police arrived at Emma's house to discover a massacre. Emma Melanie Deborah and Mark had all been murdered, and given the intense trauma on the victim's skulls, police concluded that the murder weapon was a splitting maul. A splitting maul, also known as a blockbuster or sledge axe, is a large-handed axe used for splitting pieces of wood. The state of decomposition suggested that Emma, Melanie, and Deborah were killed approximately four days prior to Mark. Sick was then left with the grim responsibility of alerting Kathleen of what had happened. She called him, demanding to know if he'd learned anything new. In a desperate attempt to buy some time, Sick put down the phone and asked his business partner at the time what he should tell her. But Kathleen could hear the conversation in the background.
0: And she was like, what do you know? And I remember telling her, I said, you know, I'm, I'm sorry, Mrs. Wells, she thought about was death. Man, uh, I can hear it in my head right now. She let out this scream. I'll never forget. It'll haunt me forever. It'll always haunt me. I'll never forget that.
1: Kathleen was near inconsolable. Sick ended up speaking to a male relative of Melanie's who was able to maintain his composure and ask what the situation was. Sick was torn that he had to break that news to her. But police weren't telling Kathleen what had happened to her daughter, and he wanted to believe he'd done the right thing, that he'd faced this terrible intimate knowledge and given it to the one person who needed it more than anyone else. Although police were now well aware of Sam's confession, he was nowhere to be found. He managed to flee the scene in Emma's father's car. Once news of the murders reached the rest of the local police, Richmond Airport Security was alerted to be on the lookout for anyone matching Sam's description. Luckily, Sam's flight wasn't until the next day, and he didn't have enough money to get on an earlier flight. So that same day, Airport Security found a disheveled young man in the baggage claim area having a snooze. Although he sat with his hood covering his face, he was easily recognized. As security approached him, they caught the smell of an unsettling foul odor. Most likely, the scent of decomposing bodies, which had seeped into his clothing. On September 19, 2009, Sam was arrested. When asked what his motive was, Police sergeant Andy Ellington said Murkroski replied, Jesus told me to do it. It wasn't until he realized he was facing the death penalty that he began to provide some real answers. He revealed that the night they returned from the concert, he took a combination of alcohol, prescription drugs, and cannabis. Once everyone was asleep in the house, he wandered outside and found the splitting mall in the garden. His first victim was Melanie, who was sleeping on the sofa. Next was Emma. He snuck into her bedroom, striking her multiple times. Finally, he did the same to her mom, who was also sleeping. During their investigation, police took McCroskey's computer, phone, and more than a dozen paper bags full of evidence from his home. By Sam's own admission, and backed by forensic evidence, none of the female victims fought back or woke during the attacks. Sick firmly believes that there was an intentional reason why Sam chose to attack them in their sleep.
0: What he did was f***ing cowardly. If he would have attacked those girls while they were awake, they would have beat the f*** out of him. Those girls, they would have that dude up. I guarantee it. I know it. I know it in my heart. He would have never got to kill them but he had to be a coward and kill them while they slept because he probably knew deep down, like, these girls going to f*** me up if I don't do this while they sleep.
1: Mark's death, however, was a different story. When he drove to Emma's home to check on the girls, Sam had been waiting for him and struck him in the same way he had the others. But Mark had survived the initial blow. Although he fought back, Sam managed to overpower him, attacking Mark with such force it left a gaping hole in the hardwood floor. Up until Mark had arrived, Sam had been living with the victims for three days. After he killed Mark, he spent another 24 hours in the home. During Sam's trial, it became known at some point he'd filmed himself with the bodies. Speaking to the camera, Sam claimed that he knew what he'd done was wrong and that somehow he'd pay for it. He even contemplated suicide. The evidence against Sam was overwhelming. he had only managed to avoid the death sentence due to his full confession. After taking a plea deal, Sam was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. On his way out of the courthouse, Sam smirked as he walked handcuffed in his orange jumpsuit. Sam McCroskey currently resides in Red Onion State Prison in Virginia, where he'll spend the rest of his life. After Sam was sentenced to prison, some rumors began to emerge that suggested sick was somehow part of his crimes a man who claimed to be an extra in one of Sick's music videos, made various accusations, which included pointing out what he felt were parallels between the murders and Sick's music videos. Sick describes just how damaging and malicious the spread of false information can be.
0: Basically, you know, right away, whenever this story hit the media, there is a website, which I'm sure is still around, and it's kind of like these armchair detectives who don't have lives. So those people caught wind of the case because the media was talking about it. And they went off the f***ing deep end with all these conspiracies and all this crazy shit. You know, I don't know if they called the media or what, but then eventually the media got this impression that I was like this Charlie Manson type of cult figure. There was two kind of rumors going around you know for a while the fingers were literally like getting pointed at me like there's people saying there was extra set of footprints found at the scene of the crime and that it was me
1: the unconfirmed rumors had circulated around the internet so much the news even caught the interest of maxim magazine who then approached sick hoping to get an expose on the charles manson like cult figure but to their disappointment After three days of interviews and photos, Sick was told by the writer that he was one of the most boring people he'd ever met.
0: They came out and they thought that they were going to meet this Charlie Manson type dude. And I remember at the end of the three days, the guy told me, he was like, you know, with all due respect, you're one of the most boring people I've ever met. And I told him, with all due respect, thank you. (laughs) You know, because that's exactly what you know. This is why I was doing this. I wanted to prove to people like I'm just a regular dude. Like, yeah, I'm interested in some weird shit. So, what? Everyone has their interests. Like, that doesn't make me a person. It sure as don't make me Charlie Manson.
1: For Siktanic. If there was one thing he hoped to accomplish by speaking about this horrific tragedy again, it would be to demolish the pedestal that some of the people from the horrorcore community have placed Sam on.
0: Some people have built him up to be this figure of defining of horror core and he's the real deal and kids a fucking bitch, dude. Like like I come from Albuquerque, New Mexico. Down there, if someone's gonna put in work, like they're gonna look you in your eye. You know what I mean? Like I come from the streets and that's not that's not how you handle business. You don't slaughter innocent people like that. You don't kill little girls, you know what I'm saying? So I always tried to make it a point to shatter this image that some people have built up about him. Like I want his persona shattered. He doesn't deserve any props. He doesn't deserve a cult-like following. He doesn't deserve fans. Like, he deserves nothing but his prison sentence.
1: The murder shook the Farmville community to its core. Their crime rate had been one of the lowest in Virginia, with murders being exceptionally rare. Between 2005 and 2019, only eight murders were committed, four of which were at the hands of Sam McCroskey. With tragedy comes introspection, and for over 20 years, with every new attack, the question of media always comes up. With every new introduction to entertainment and media, along with coinciding instances of violence people began to wonder, is there a connection?
0: I think I have an obligation to get my feelings out. And if someone can relate, they can relate. Like, I can't put the weight of the world on my back. I'm here to do what I'm here to do. And I feel I have an obligation and a responsibility to be honest and to be forthcoming about my art and my music and the message that I I put out. As far as how people digest it, you know, that's not up to me. There was an interview with Marilyn Manson during the whole Columbine thing. If someone asked him, like, you know, if Dylan and Eric were sitting here right now, what would you say to them? And Marilyn Manson replied, I wouldn't say anything like Listen, he said some really deep shit right there because that's the truth. Some of these kids... I say kids, I mean everyone, but, you know, anyone who, who's feeling a certain type of way, like, they need something to relate to. And sometimes, unfortunately, people have, like, mental health problems. Sometimes people weren't raised right. Sometimes people are bullied to a degree that, you know, me, you, and no one else could really understand. And, and sometimes those people get pushed over the edge. But I think it's a pre-existing condition. I don't think art or music or video games or movies or entertainment should ever be blamed for any of that because the world is the way the world is. I think that if someone is going to become a mass shooter, they're going to become a mass shooter. It doesn't matter what type of music they listen to. It doesn't matter what type of video games they play. The type of movies they watch, they're gonna do what they're gonna do. The sooner we stop trying to make like scapegoat things and, and the sooner we start trying to talk to people and ask them, why is it that you feel this way? Very honest and non-discriminatory fashion. And we just listen, we let people talk and tell us like, this is how I feel and this is why I feel this way. The sooner we can stop pointing fingers and start having discourse, the sooner we can make some progress as a species. We need to start asking some hard questions that people don't want to talk about. We need to talk about those things in a very open manner. And we've got to stop blaming things and people and this, that, and the other. we need to ask, like, what is it that's really going on here? Why did the Vegas, Vegas shooter do what he did? Why did Sam McCroskey do what he did? We can point fingers all we want because it's the only way we can deal with shit because we don't understand it because it makes no sense to us. A regular person doesn't want to harm another person unless they have to, really. You know, that's, that's when instinct kicks in. But no one wants to slaughter someone usually. But what is it inside these certain type of people
1: Emma, Melanie, and Sam's MySpace pages are still available to visit. Hauntingly, the last message Emma posted was on the day before she met Sam in person. It said, I know my mind works weird because I always expect the worst, but I'm trying so hard not to with you because I know you'd never hurt me.
0: I understand this from a different perspective that a lot of people fortunately won't ever get to see. And that's because I'm a homicide survivor. My mom was killed very brutally. I was like a year old. And that's been something that has obviously affected me for my whole life. You know, it it was a, a case that never got solved, you know, one of these cold case things and um... Being a survivor of that type of trauma and understanding it from that perspective gives me the ability to have a level of empathy that I don't think most people would be able to achieve because I, you know, it's one thing for someone to say, I I, I understand. But when I say I understand about this particular thing, I really do understand because my whole life was affected so I can kind of see things from a unique angle. You know, maybe people knowing that will break down some of the preconceived notions that maybe I've built for myself with the type of music I do or uh, uh, some of the shit someone has read about me on the internet or something. You know, maybe for that second, someone will hear what I just said and be like, oh, do understand in, in this way that doesn't make me any better or any worse than anyone. It just makes it Honest. So, I mean, hopefully, someone can get some sort of substance out of that. Mm
1: I'd like to give a special thank you to Sick Tanic for helping us with this episode. If you'd like to find out more about Sick and his music, we'll provide a link in the episode notes. And now I would like to thank the following new Patreon supporters. Kel W, Walter P, Brent M, Ashley E, Jenna K, Christy T, Jenny G, Megan M, Chris B, Rob, and Fee T. The Minds of Madness can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, and all other podcast platforms. Ad-free episodes of this show are available on Stitcher Premium. If you would like to support this show and get some extra perks, including extra content, early release, and ad-free episodes, go to patreon.com slash madnesspod. You can find our website by going to minds of madness podcast.com. To find us on Facebook and Instagram, search the minds of madness and on Twitter using the handle at madness pod. And finally, the closing track, Feel the Madness, is provided by the Funkors. You can find them at the record label's website by going to goldenerror records.com.au. G-E. I can feel the madness are standing at my
0: door I hope they can't get in cuz I'm not prepared to run I can feel the madness are standing at my door I hope they can't get in cuz I'm not prepared to run